Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The transgender patient population is an understudied cohort that is frequently treated with hormonal therapies. These therapies have several cardiovascular effects in the cisgender population and thus confer the potential for similar effects in the transgender population. Here with us today is Dr. Nathan Smith, a board-certified pharmacist practicing in surgery, to review available literature regarding cardiovascular risks and precautionary measures to be taken in transgender patients receiving gender-affirming hormone therapy. First off, some objectives. From this presentation, I'd like you all to be able to recall the clinical presentation of gender incongruence. We will identify current treatment options for our transgender males and females, and then we will describe potential cardiovascular risks associated with gender-affirming hormone therapies. So a little bit of background here quick, some definitions that we'll be using frequently in the presentation here. Gender identity really describes a person's sense of being male, female, or a combination of both. Our transgender males have that male gender identity, but were recorded as female at birth, whereas our transgender females have the female gender identity and were recorded as male at birth. Gender non-binary individuals then may identify as neither male nor female or has or as having features of both on the spectrum of male to female. Now moving on here, gender dysphoria, not all individuals that are gender incongruent have dysphoria. Gender dysphoria then is really defined as that mental health condition uh, describing that lack of alignment between gender identity and their sex recorded at birth. Gender incongruence then is the medical term defining the lack of alignment individuals feel as gender identity and gender recorded at birth do not match. A cisgender person would be a person with their gender identity aligned with their sex recorded at birth, and our gender-affirming hormone therapies and surgeries would be those interventions that are utilized to align physical appearance with their gender identity. So taking a quick look at our prevalence here in the United States, you can see of our estimated population of about 330 million people here in the US, about 1.4 million persons do identify as transgender. Comparing to some common disease states here in the United States, you would see it would actually be more common to help in the care of a transgender individual than it would be to help with the care of a patient with HIV or AIDS, ulcerative colitis, or Parkinson's disease, of course, depending on your specialty area of practice. Now, diving into our clinical presentation here, studies have acknowledged that gender labeling in children can begin as young as the age of two years old. Now, about 2.7% of children at younger ages do report gender incongruence or more fluidity with their gender. However, in these situations, most of them do not um, proceed on to be gender incongruent as adults. The majority of these individuals who continue to um, struggle with gender incongruence or have gender incongruence are um, those that present later in adolescence, usually in an effort to prevent a wrong puberty. Now, one note here is that many individuals um, will actually begin living in their desired gender role by the time they enter high school ages. Now, of course, mental health is a very important topic to discuss here. And these individuals who suffer from gender dysphoria 
Um, they frequently have many coexisting mental health disorders as well, frequently being anxiety, depression, as well as oppositional defiant disorder. Interestingly, among our transgender um, adolescents, we do see increased rates of autistic spectrum disorder among them versus our general cisgender adolescent population. Of course, with this increased rate of mental health disorders, we do see an increased need for family support as well as peer and community support. Additionally, we should really encourage these individuals to seek out psychotherapy and psychosocial counseling, as this is really going to be a great first, first step in um, reducing gender-related dis uh, distress associated with their gender dysphoria and some of the psychosocial difficulties that they may face. Now, in order to initiate therapy in our patients, we do have guidelines here laying out our criteria. So the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, as well as the Endocrine Society, provide guidelines for us here. Now, they really state that a long-lasting and intense history of gender nonconformity or dysphoria should be present, and that dysphoria should have emerged or worsened with the onset of puberty. Now, one important thing here is that we are going to want to make sure we have all comorbidities addressed and appropriately managed when initiating therapy as well. And then lastly, we need to make sure we have informed consent from the patient, as well as parents or guardians, uh, depending on the age of the patient. And then really important also to see the support from these caregivers when initiating therapy. So in order to initiate therapy, um, the discussion also must look at our barriers to therapy initiation. A study was conducted um, assessing um, transgender individuals and their barriers that they perceived to care. And the number one barrier that they addressed was actually the access to qualified care. Secondly, the cost and financial burden associated with care, as you can imagine, is quite expensive in these individuals. Additionally, fear. Fear of mistreatment in the healthcare community, fear of stigmas and bias, as well as discrimination among providers of all types while in the healthcare setting. And then, of course, employment issues after transitioning, as well as approval from psychiatrists to undergo surgical interventions. So this brings me to our first assessment question here. And now, if it's your first time to Grand Rounds, please respond using the pollev.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333. So which of the following statements is true? Children may begin labeling gender as early as six years of age. All transgender persons have dysphoria and should be treated as such. A long-lasting history of gender nonconformity or dysphoria is required to initiate therapy. Or is it D, access to qualified care is not a barrier to care for transgender individuals? All righty, so it looks like we've got a decent number of responses here. So the correct answer is C, um, children can begin labeling gender as early as two years of age. Um, not all transgender persons have dysphoria. And then that access to qualified care was actually identified as the number one barrier to care for these individuals. So switching gears to treatment here now, a quick overview of treatment options here. We have three primary pathways for treatment of gender incongruence for these individuals. The initial step is going to be through changes in gender expression. In this stage, we are really going to be encouraging patients to live either part-time or full-time in their preferred gender role. Secondly here um, will be accomplished through psychotherapy and working with counselors here. Um, and here they will really explore gender identity, the role, and how they would like to um, express their gender identity in the public and private setting. 
And then lastly here, we have our physical interventions, and this is where we'll be um, focusing today here on our th hormone therapies as well as surgical options. So looking at our physical interventions here, we again have three primary pathways being our fully reversible, partially reversible, and irreversible interventions. Looking at our fully reversible interventions here, we primarily have our um, puberty suppressing agents, so our GnRH analogs, progestins, as well as spironolactone. Excuse me. And here we're, uh, we're primarily going to be suppressing that production of estrogen and testosterone, but these interventions, when removed, are fully reversible and the body will resume a normal physiologic process. Our partially reversible interventions here are going to be our hormone therapies, primarily being our masculinizing or feminizing agents with testosterone or estrogen. Now, when these agents are removed, they may leave some effects, such as gynecomastia with estrogen production, which would then need to be surgically reversed. And then our irreversible procedures would be our surgical interventions. So addressing our goals of therapy here, in our transmasculine patients, our primary goal here is going to be cessation of menses. We look for deepening of the voice, increasing facial and body hair, and then increasing muscle mass and fat distribution to a more masculine physique. Then for our transfeminine patients, we are going to be looking to reduce facial hair growth, inducing breast development, and redistributing fat and muscle uh, tissue and cells to a more feminine look. Now, one thing to note in our transfeminine patients is that if we initiate hormone therapy after puberty onset, the hormone therapy will not actually affect the patient's height or voice, the deepness of their voice. So contraindications to hormonal therapy here, in our masculinizing patients receiving testosterone therapy, we want to make sure these patients are not pregnant, they have no history of unstable coronary artery disease, and no unstable polycythemia with a hematocrit greater than 55%. In our feminizing patients, there are no contraindications to therapy per se. However, some relative contraindications for estrogen therapy would include that history of previous venous thromboembolism, as well as a hypercoagulable condition or a family history of such hypercoagulable condition. Additionally, estrogen-sensitive neoplasms and end-stage liver disease would be relative contraindications to these patients. So looking mechanistically here, we must dive into our hormonal regulation pathway through our hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And so, of course, we have our hypothalamus up in the brain, which releases that gonadotropin-releasing hormone, um, goes to our anterior pituitary gland, which then stimulates the release of luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone. This travels to our testes and ovaries to then further induce the release of testosterone and estrogen production. Here we have our negative feedback loops to then regulate the production of these hormones. One extra step in our males, though, is that conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone via the enzyme 5-alpha reductase. Now, dihydrotestosterone is about a tenfold more potent in androgenic activity in these patients, or not in these patients, in all people. So we really want to make sure that this mechanism is controlled for when treating our patients. So looking at our hormonal therapy options for our transgender males here, we again are going to divide therapy options into puberty suppression and masculinizing therapies. So for puberty suppression here, we're really going to lean on our gonadotropin-releasing hormone um, agents or analogs here. And for our masculinizing agents here, it's going to be achieved through testosterone via a variety of routes. Now, testosterone 
is primarily utilized via topical, transdermal, or parenteral routes, only one agent being that testosterone undecanoate is available in the oral dosage form. And again, here, our testosterone goal range that we're going to treat to is that range of 320 to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. Switching back to our HPG axis here then in our transgender males, you can see our GnRH agonists are going to reversibly bind to that anterior pituitary gland and cause that initial overstimulation of our GnRH receptors. This will initially increase our luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone um, leading to increased estrogen production. However, through our negative feedback loops and chronic administration here, this overstimulation leads to suppression of LH and FSH, um, complete block of egg development and estrogen production, as well as cessation of menses. Switching to hormonal therapy for our transgender women here now, we have a few more agents we can look to. So we have our puberty suppressing as well as feminizing agents here. Spironolactone is really going to be that most widely used and widely studied um, anti-androgen agent here, and it has a variety of actions at a number of receptors. It functions as an antagonist at the androgen receptor, a selective estrogen receptor modulator, a weak agonist of the progesterone receptor, and an antagonist of the glucocorticoid receptor. Additionally, it inhibits that production of androgens and inhibits 5-alpha reductase, which does that conversion of testosterone to DHT. Now, additionally, we have our finasteride and dutasteride, which are more commonly um, used for other purposes, but they do block that enzyme 5-ethylreductase. And then bicalutamide, additionally here, can be used as an alternative agent that is an androgen receptor blocker. Again, we have our um, GnRH agonists here that can additionally be used via a variety of routes. For our feminizing agents here specifically, we're really going to focus on our estrogens in this talk today, um, progesterone, medroxyprogesterone acetate, and our hormonal contraceptive progestins are not widely used as their um, risk versus benefit is pretty controversial. So today for this talk, we'll be focusing on estrogen um, when discussing our feminizing agents. And treatment for our transgender females should target that goal estradiol range of 15 to 350 picograms per milliliter. So jumping back to our HPG axis here, again in our transgender females, you can see we are going to utilize, utilize those GnRH agonists via the same mechanism as our transgender males. Um, and then additionally here, all of our medications that are going to target the enzyme 5-alpha reductase will block that conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. Like I previously mentioned, this is very important as it is more potent. Additionally, dihydrotestosterone um, really targets those uh, androgen receptors in hair follicles, primarily on the face, chest, and back. So this is going to be a very important mechanism for our transgender females. Lastly here for our interventions, we have surgical interventions available in our transgender females. We have facial feminization and breast augmentation procedures. And then for genital reconstruction, we can perform orchiectomies, penectomies, and vaginoplasties. For our transgender males, we can perform chest reconstruction as well as hysterectomy and oophorectomy. And then for genital reconstruction here, we can also perform metoidoplasties as well as phalloplasties. And the difference here really being for the metoidoplasty, this is going to be the creation of a penis using genital skin, whereas a phalloplasty is going to be the creation of a penis using a skin flap from another site. 
So my next assessment question here, which of the following is an irreversible therapy option? Is it A, a hysterectomy and oophorectomy? B, spironolactone? C, medroxyprogesterone acetate? Or D, testosterone undecanoate? Alrighty, so we've got a pretty good response here, and everybody is correct that hysterectomy and oophorectomy being a surgical intervention is going to be our irreversible therapy option. Each of the following are medications that are either partially reversible or fully reversible here. So getting to the heart of our conversation here now, um, diving into our cardiovascular effects of estrogen. Here we first know that estrogen's response is seen through its activity at our estrogen receptors, alpha, beta, and the G-protein coupled receptors for estrogen. Now on vascular endothelial cells, we can see vasodilatation primarily through an effect of the release of nitric oxide. Now additionally here, we can see reduced vascular tone and blood pressure control as a result of this. One additional note on our vascular endothelial cells being that we do also see endothelial cell proliferation, which can be beneficial or harmful depending on our situation. On our smooth muscle cells lining the vasculature then, we see vasodilation through calcium-mediated effects at those calcium-mediated junctions. And then on our cardiomyocytes, estrogen really has protective effects against vascular inflammation, decreasing insulin resistance, as well as reduced ischemia and reperfusion injury, as well as decreased cardiac hypertrophy after potential ischemic events. Jumping to our cardiovascular effects of testosterone now, similar to estrogen, testosterone's effects are achieved through the activation of our androgen receptors. In vascular endothelial cells, we can see vasoconstrictive effects through activation of thromboxane A2. However, activation of those androgen receptors can also induce direct vasodilation as well as leukocyte migration, inflammation, and oxidative stress. This can all accumulate to very damaging effects on our vascular here. For in the smooth muscle cells here, we can see vascular smooth muscle cell apoptosis and again vasoconstriction through activation of that thromboxane A2. In our cardiomyocytes, though, we can see cardioprotective effects after ischemia through upregulation of those alpha-1 adrenoreceptors, which actually promote physiologic adaptation of the heart and protection of cell death. So getting to our first cardiovascular discussion here, we'll look primarily at venous thromboembolisms associated with gender-affirming hormone therapy. So we know we have um, traditional risk factors for VTE here, those being fracture, surgery, known thrombophilias, as well as tobacco smoking and malignancies. In our first observational study performed and published back in 1989, they suggested a 20 to 45-fold increased risk of VTE among our transgender female patients. However, one important caveat in this study was that they thought it was very dependent on that route of estrogen administration. One additional note here, I did not find in any of my research or the literature that I reviewed that there was a study published showing an increased risk of VTE among transgender male patients. So looking at our first article here was a review article published by Goldstein and colleagues back in 2019. And in this study, they looked only at transgender females that were receiving gender-affirming hormone therapy and really comparing them to a cisgender female population that was receiving combined oral contraceptives or postmenopausal cisgender women that were receiving hormone replacement therapy. As outcomes, they were looking at the type of oral estrogen taken, the route of administration, as well as patient demographics and comorbidities that may um, link 
them to uh, or provide a link for estrogens to venous thromboembolism. Now, looking further at our studies here, of the 12 studies included in this review, uh, seven of them did show an increased risk of venous thromboembolism among our transgender patients. You can see a variety of VTE rates here, sample sizes varied, as well as the mean age of our patients. Now, from this slide, I'd really like you to take away the risk factors that they addressed and identified for that greatest link to venous thromboembolism among our patients taking estrogen therapy here. As you can see, there is a consistent risk factor of smoking and hyperlipidemia, and additionally, hypertension was frequently noted as a common risk factor in these patients. Looking next here at our route of administration in our same studies here, you can see in our first study they looked just at oral administration routes and had that highest um, rate of venous thromboembolism here. Um, and additionally, in our other studies, you can see that oral route of administration was most frequently associated with venous thromboembolism. This is not to say that estrogen provided via other routes causes no VTEs. As you can see, we did have venous thromboembolisms develop in these patients, but that oral route is most frequently associated and had that highest rate of VTE. Now, additionally, in a very recent um, single-center retrospective chart review published here in January of 2021, Cozado and colleagues looked at a pretty good population of transgender males and transgender females. Um, and in this study, they looked only at patients undergoing transmasculine and transfeminine surgeries with continued or temporarily held gender-affirming hormone therapy. Now, as you can see in our transgender male population, those which nobody actually had their hormone therapy held and no VTEs did occur. Our only venous thromboembolism did occur in a patient who actually had their hormone therapy held. Now, in this study, their design, they held therapy for one week prior to surgery and one week after surgery. So this patient who actually developed that VTE underwent a vaginoplasty and had her hormone therapy held. This would then suggest and um, align with our current protocol here at Mayo Clinic in which we do not traditionally hold estrogen replacement therapy for our patients who are undergoing these transgender uh, procedures. So overall, um, a review of VTE here and prevention, we have our guideline recommendations. Now, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health here did provide the recommendation that transdermal estrogen is really recommended for all of those patients that have VTE risk factors and special avoidance of ethanol estradiol, as this is the most commonly utilized oral estrogen that is um, taken by these patients. The Endocrine Society also repeated this recommendation and went one step further to state that thrombophilia screen prior to initiating that gender-affirming hormone therapy should be restricted to those patients with a personal or family history of VTE. These patients already have that significant financial burden and is a major barrier to therapy for them, so this would just add additional cost. One step further, monitoring of those D-dimer levels is also not recommended as um, just as an additional cost for these patients. Switching gears to our next cardiovascular discussion here, we'll look at ischemic heart disease. So again, we have our traditional risk factors for IHD, those being tobacco smoking, as well as hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, a sedentary lifestyle, and obesity. Quoting that first observational study again published in 1989, they actually showed no difference in MI or MI-related death among transgender patients. 
Subsequent studies did not quite agree with this information, though, and we will discuss that further here. So what two retrospective lifetime history studies were published, first one by Meyer and colleagues, at which they grouped together 691 transgender males and transgender females. They did not define the type of hormone therapy these patients were receiving, but they did find that statistically significant increased rate of myocardial infarction in our transgender group versus the cisgender cohort. Now, in the study by Nokoff and colleagues, they looked at 369 transgender females, 239 transgender males, and 156 gender nonconforming individuals. Now, when they compared the transgender female population to the cisgender female population, they found that statistically significant increased risk of myocardial infarction in the transgender female group. However, the same result was not seen as in the transgender males as no difference was seen in this population. So looking at a few studies here on IHD, the first published by Ashman and colleagues in 2011, a rather large population here in the retrospective longitudinal cohort study that they performed, looking at transgender females and transgender males receiving hormone therapy from a variety of routes. Now, it was a rather long study here with a follow-up of about 18 and a half years, so that's really good to see that we can assess the effects over a long period of time. The study by Daney and colleagues looked at a little smaller population with 191 transgender females and 133 transgender males in a population-based matched cohort study. In this study, they were not looking at the gender-affirming hormone therapy that these patients re but received, but rather the gender uh, reassignment surgery that was performed and if they had an IHD-related event as a result. The mean follow-up of this study was, again, rather long at 11 years, so really good to see here. And our last study by work and colleagues, an additional retrospective cross-sectional study looking at a transgender females and transgender male population receiving that hormone therapy from a variety of routes here, with a pretty good uh, duration here of seven and a half years as well. Looking at the outcomes of these three studies here, you can see our first study by Ashman and colleagues um, when looking at those IHD-related outcomes and mortality, we did find a statistically significant increase in that rate of IHD-related mortality in our transgender females when compared to that cisgender population uh, for a comparator. When diving deeper in a subgroup analysis for cardiovascular mortality only performed on those transgender females, they did also find an increased rate of cardiovascular mortality that was statistically significant in the overall analysis as well as an adjusted analysis when adjusting for risk factors identified in the study. Um, in the study published by Danny and colleagues here, they did also see an increased risk of cardiovascular mortality in the transgender population versus the cisgender population, excuse me. However, one important limitation of this study is that the cisgender population that they were compared to did not actually even undergo a procedure. So they're comparing transgender population who underwent procedures to a cisgender population that did not undergo a procedure. And our last study here was a, that retrospective cross-sectional study did also find an increased prevalence of MI events in our transgender female population that was statistically significant. However, no cases were seen in the transgender male population. 
So lastly, a look at a quick observational cross-sectional study here in the United States published in 2019. They looked at a rather large population of transgender males and transgender females here, utilizing those behavioral risk factor surveillance system data from 2014 to 2019. And in this study, they compared to cisgender men and women and compared both groups to both groups here. So they were really adjusting for overall risk factors for IHD here, including age, diabetes, smoking status, kidney disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, as well as exercise frequency. And even after adjusting for all of these risk factors, they did still see that twofold increased risk of myocardial infarction among our transgender females when compared to cisgender females. However, this was not seen when compared to the cisgender male comparator group. Very interestingly here, in our transgender male population, we saw that greater than fourfold increased risk versus the cisgender females and a twofold increased risk of MI compared to the cisgender male population. So really looking at some prevention efforts here for these IHD-related events, we need to assess our risk factors and treat comorbidities. So risk factors that we have discussed being tobacco use, diabetes, obesity, leading that sedentary lifestyle, as well as thrombophilias, and addressing their family history. We should then appropriately treat our comorbidities of hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, as well as encouraging the cessation of tobacco use. So switching to our next topic now, we have hypertension and its uh, relation to gender-affirming hormone therapy. So again, we have our traditional risk factors that we are likely all aware of here being tobacco use, excessive alcohol, unhealthy diet, obesity, diabetes, and a sedentary lifestyle. Now our first observational study back in 1989 did show no increased incidence of hypertension um, or I'm sorry, did show an increased incidence among our transgender females, but no increase in our transgender males. Subsequent studies would support this and show that there was an increase in systolic blood pressure as well as diastolic blood pressure after starting gender-affirming hormone therapy. Looking at a pretty small study here published by Collegian colleagues in 2015, they did a prospective follow-up study of transgender males and transgender females. Um, receiving gender-affirming hormone therapy in estrogen or testosterone routes. Now, they took a baseline systolic blood pressure, and then after initiating hormone therapy, they looked at year one post-initiation and year two post-initiation. And as you can see here, we do have statistically significant increases at year one and year two, suggesting that after initiation of hormone therapy, we did um, develop higher blood pressure associated. In our next study conducted by Emmy and colleagues looking at um, transgender males receiving androgen therapy, so transgender males only here, they received intramuscular testosterone injections for about four years, and they were compared to a transgender male population that had never received um, testosterone therapy. Now, in this study, you can see by the p-values there, all of these results were statistically significant with significant increases in systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, and mean arterial blood pressure or mean arterial pressure. However, one thing to note here is that while these are all increases in blood pressure, you can see that none of these are true spikes into a worrisome hypertension level. So whether this is clinically relevant or not is up for discussion as well here. Our last topic we will cover today is ischemic stroke. 
So again, we have our risk factors here being hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, as well as tobacco smoking, sex, and heart and blood vessel diseases. Now sex, interestingly, men are at an increased risk of ischemic stroke at younger ages. However, females tend to live longer, so their overall lifetime risk of stroke is greater than males. So that first observational study back in 1989, again quoting that study, showed no difference in the incidence of TIA in transgender females versus a cisgender male population. However, our subsequent studies have showed similar outcomes with no difference in uh, mortality in that transgender female population and no cases at all in our transgender males. So looking at a study published here in 2018 by Gedehune and colleagues, they had a rather large population with over 2,000 transgender males and 2,000 transgender females. The comparator group here was utilizing a 10 to 1 ratio, so a very large population of cisgender individuals included in this study. Now they were looking at an initial index date of gender-affirming hormone therapy initiation and then comparing um, overall for the period here. Now you can see in our transgender male population, only two um, ischemic events did occur, or ischemic strokes did occur in those who had received testosterone therapy. And then looking at our transgender female population here, we see that in the overall population, um, we did have a statistically significant increased rate of ischemic stroke versus our cisgender females. However, in a subgroup analysis of those individuals um, who are receiving estrogen therapy for greater than six years, we saw an increased uh, risk that was statistically significant versus our, trans or our cisgender male population and our cisgender female population. Interestingly, in this study, the Kaplan-Meier curves did uh, continue to increase the longer the study went on, suggesting that potentially the longer patients are on estrogen therapy, the greater their risk of ischemic stroke would continue to increase then. So an overall summary of gender-affirming hormone therapy effects on our cardiovascular system here. Um, for our VTE risk, we really see that increased risk in our transgender female population alone. Um, when looking at IHD and cardiovascular-related mortality and myocardial infarction rates, we see that slight increased risk in our transgender females and an increased risk in our transgender males. When looking at hypertension, we do see that slight increase in our transgender females and transgender males. Whether or not this is clinically relevant, it's up for discussion. And then as far as ischemic stroke, we do see that increased risk in our transgender female patients receiving estrogen therapy, of course. This brings me to our last assessment question for the day. Which of the following is true? Transgender males receiving long-acting testosterone injections are at an increased risk of venous thromboembolism. Transgender females taking oral estradiol are at an increased risk of VTE. Transgender persons who smoke tobacco are at a reduced risk of cardiovascular events. And leading a sedentary lifestyle and obesity will decrease the risk of transgender females developing hypertension. All righty. Yes, B is correct here, as transgender females taking that oral estradiol replacement would be the individuals at increased risk of VTE. Now, a few limitations that we must discuss when examining these studies. Are we utilizing appropriate comparator groups, as this is a major limitation of studies across the board? Should our transgender male population be compared to cisgender males or cisgender females? And should our cisgender female population be compared to, transgender, or to cisgender males or cisgender females in our studies? 
One additional consideration would be our ethical considerations in structuring these trials. It would not be ethically appropriate to conduct a randomized controlled trial where one group does not receive hormone therapy and desire the same outcomes as that group who receives the hormone therapy. Because of this, we really have a lack of high quality and prospective trials that we can lean on for great guidance and recommendations. So in summary here, our individuals uh, really may experience gender incongruence with or without dysphoria from a young age. Um, adolescents ex uh, seeking initiation of gender-affirming hormone therapy should begin with our full, fully reversible agents. And then gender-affirming hormone therapy carries that increased risk of CV events in transgender males and females, and appropriate treatment of their comorbidities should be uh, taken advantage of when initiating therapy, and this is a great intervention point for pharmacists as well. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.